The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Connie Engel. She is the Science Education Coordinator at the Breast Cancer Fund. She is an expert on the conjunction of science and advocacy in the environmental breast cancer movement. Connie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so interested in what the Breast Cancer Fund is doing and especially with regard to a campaign that you're heading up with regard to BPA in cans. So let's first talk about the Breast Cancer Fund overall. Tell me about the Breast Cancer Fund. What what is the mission? So the Breast Cancer Fund was founded in 1992, and um, our mission is to identify and advocate for the elimination of chemicals and other preventative causes of breast cancer. And with regard to environmental exposures, as a dietitian, I've been trained to look at food, diet, and sometimes exercise in that mix in terms of preventing chronic diseases. But rarely are we really taught to focus on how environmental toxins might be playing a role in our chronic diseases. What kind of environmental toxins does the Breast Cancer Fund focus on? So we look at kind of the breadth of the issue first Mm -hmm. to take stock of the context and what we know about chemicals as a whole. So, for instance, looking very broadly, we know that some chemicals, particularly those chemicals called endocrine-disrupting compounds, can have the strongest impact early in life so that early life exposures affect later life disease, that some of these Endocrine-disrupting compounds in particular can work at very low doses. And also that, you know, we have to think about the whole context of being exposed to multiple chemicals in our daily lives, not just one at a time. Mm -hmm. So we start there. And within that, have looked at some specific chemicals where the evidence is most compelling and raises the most concerns. So these are chemicals like bisphenol A, or BPA, that a lot of people probably have seen on water bottles that say BPA-free or baby bottles that say that. Mm -hmm. Um, We've looked at chemicals called phthalates that were banned from kids' toys in 2008 by the federal government, thanks to a campaign and a lot of work that some of my colleagues did here. And certainly we've looked at um, different pesticide exposures, that are of concern either on our food or, you know, when you're growing the food and then the pesticides end up draining into a water system, let's say. Mm-hmm. So we've looked at a whole breadth of, of issues, but those are some highlights. So with regard to the chemical soups or the chemical mixtures that are out there, we might have data on individual compounds, but it's those combination of compounds. We just don't have a clue, do we? 
Generally speaking, you know, most of the research is conducted on, on one chemical exposure at a time. And so then you do get an understanding maybe of how that particular chemical contributes, but very few studies have addressed mixtures of chemicals, especially more than two or three of them. And when they have, some of those have found significant concerns when you combine chemicals that they, instead of just adding up, you know, a little bit plus a little bit equals a little more, Mm -hmm. they actually look more like they multiply each other's effects. Mm -hmm. So one researcher pointed out that it might require 166 million experiments to test all combinations of three of the most 1,000 common synthetic chemicals currently in use. Oh, my. Right, so we have to, when we get to that level of data, have an understanding of that issue broadly because we can't do all of those 166 million studies to find out the individual concerns and combinations that might raise raise issues. Mm -hmm. So there is a synergy of, of, of these compounds. You know, I think from a consumer standpoint, there's this understanding that, well, if it's sold, it must be safe. Or if the company that makes the compound tells us that it's safe or tells us that it breaks down in the environment with a short, within a short amount of time, we don't tend to question that information, do we? I think you're right. I think there is an, ex- an expectation from consumers that the government has made sure these things that are being sold are safe. And the reality is that our chemicals policy is outdated and really in need of reform. It was one of the major pieces of law was passed in 1976. That's the Toxic Substances Control Act. And at that time, 62,000 chemicals were grandfathered in and assumed to be safe. It's been very hard for the legislation passed through that to really have the teeth to ban chemicals of concern. For instance, it couldn't even fully ban all uses of asbestos, which, you know, there's a ton of data to point out that it has major impacts for lung cancer and other illnesses. So there are challenges in that. Cosmetics legislation passed even well before that. So there's a need for reform. Well, let's talk about some of the challenges with regard to to reform. What is going on right now with the Toxic Substances Control Act? I believe that was up for some debate. Has that bill passed? It has not yet passed. There has been legislation introduced in the past couple of Congress, and there's legislation, the Safe Chemicals Act of 2011, in Congress right now. That legislation would introduce some really important reforms to give the Toxic Substances Control Act, the strength that it needs, and give the EPA um, the power to impact chemical safety in the way that it needs to. Uh, You know, certainly under the direction of Lisa Jackson, the current leadership of the EPA has really worked to address some of the limitations of the Toxic Substances Control Act and, and to make the best use of its jurisdiction. But that doesn't mean that we don't need that greater reform. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's an important piece of legislation 
builds in controls for children and um, other stuff like that. And um, she's really worked to give it the teeth that it needs. But the legislation also needs to pass to make that ongoing and stronger. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a place where all of us were listeners and we, we can form in solidarity to contact our legislators and let them know that we're paying attention to how they're going to vote on this particular legislation. Would you agree? Is that our best tact for this? First, you know, something as big as chemicals policy as a whole, absolutely people should contact the legislators and encourage them to vote to create health protective legislation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money working against us, isn't there? There are definitely challenges out there where industry may have concerns, although even industry is calling for reform. Good. So it's it's a question of how that reform happens so that it's the most health protective it can be. Things that call, for instance, for green chemistry, for solutions that consider health, things that can actually create green jobs are important. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one compound in particular that you mentioned, the BPA. Yes. I think this is one that that I think consumers can have a lot of influence, at least in the food marketplace. Now, what I find so interesting about the BPA, and it goes back to something you said earlier about, you know, we've got these these compounds in our environment and they're acting synergistically, but there's also the piece where we used to think that the dose made the poison. And especially with BPA, if I'm understanding the literature correctly, it looks like very, very small amounts are biologically active, whereas we used to think that, no, you'd have to have many more or much more of that compound to have the same effect. But it's not necessarily the dose-makes-the-poison relationship there. BPA is definitely um, a, a poster chemical for endocrine-disrupting compounds. It's considered to be one because it can act like estrogen. And that class of chemicals does exactly what you just said. It can exert effects. These chemicals as a class can exert effects on the body's development at exquisitely low doses. Mm-hmm. Because our own hormones, if you, if you look into it and, and research that, they kind of do their conductorship of, of our body's systems at really low amounts. Right. So that changes that prevailing notion because chemicals that act like them and disrupt them can push those buttons and throw things off at really, really low doses. So let's talk about where we find BPA in our environment. We find it in certain kinds of plastics. But what's interesting is we find it also in the lining of canned food. And the Breast Cancer Fund, I, I noticed online, has a new campaign called Cans Not Cancer. Tell yes. me about that. So one of the things we noticed in our educational efforts and in talking to consumers was that people, most people had heard about this chemical BPA and they we're looking to avoid it in plastics, in baby bottles, in water bottles. And that, you know, was, was a piece of knowledge that had really spread through a lot of networks and through a lot of communities, mothers, parents, etc. But very few people knew that this chemical BPA was also in the lining of canned foods. And we would see, you know, surprise and 
you know, shock at that fact because it's not labeled, it's not indicated, and it's not commonly discussed. So as a result of that surprise, we wanted to do some educating of consumers that, yes, indeed, most um, food cans have a very thin what's called epoxy lining that is made up partially of BPA. And you can, if you look at your can and you go home next time you open one up, you can see the sheen of that epoxy, actually. So when we're looking at the inside of a can, I'm thinking back, is that the white lining or a yellow lining, is there a specific color that gives us a clue to know that the BPA is there? I would actually have to double-check on that. I think that it can show up in a couple of, of different Colors. So the color alone is not an indication. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I was looking at some data about the levels of BPA that can migrate from the can into the food. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping you might be able to explain, are these levels levels of concern? And which products in particular might have the most, or is any level a a level of concern? To a degree, I think that we may not fully know the answer to your second question of whether any level is a level of concern. And that's where a lot of the discussions in the science live right now, is what's a level of concern? Is there what scientists call a threshold level where it's safe? And if so, how do we assess what that is? Mm Mm-hmm. There have definitely been laboratory studies, and that's usually studies in animal models, usually those whose mammary gland development is relatively analogous to human breast development and, you know, other health issues, that have demonstrated concerns certainly at the level of, this gets tricky, okay, so at the level of exposure where a canned food per pound of body weight would expose a human, right, mm-hmm. if you translate and do all that math, mm-hmm. at those levels of exposure, laboratory studies have found health impacts, mostly in neurological development and male reproductive development. That's where those tests have been done. Mm-hmm. Tests at that level have not been done on um, mammary gland development and on a number of other issues. So there are concerns, but they're not across the board health-wise in some cases because the research hasn't been conducted. Right. Well, I come from the standpoint of the precautionary principle where there's even a level of concern at all. Let's take the path of caution and let's say let's take that out of our food system. Is it is it that difficult to remove from cans? I mean, what is the resistance here? So we know that there are canned food companies who are finding successful replacements Mostly what they're doing is going back to compounds that were used prior to the introduction of BPA in the lining of cans, oleorosins made out of vegetables. And so for some canned foods, that can work. It costs a little bit more money, and it might be hard actually to produce sufficient amounts to reform the whole canned food industry of of those compounds. And they don't work for things like tomatoes that are really acidic. So there are some solutions, but new technology needs to be developed that can fully replace the linings of of 
these food cans. And we'd really like to see companies taking a proactive stance in developing and making those replacements. But all alternatives also need to be tested to be determined safe, safer than BPA and safe for our use. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Connie Engel. She is the Science Education Coordinator at the Breast Cancer Fund and is an expert on the conjunction of science and advocacy in the environmental breast cancer movement. I have to ask you, Connie, with regard to the issue of BPA in cans and moving away from it, I've noticed that I believe it's Eden brand cans have said that they've taken some of the BPA out for most of their products. I've seen other products now moving towards having a glass container, much better than having, say, for example, I was looking for tomato paste in particular, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to buy tomato paste anymore because I don't want any, I don't want to support the BPA and getting it into our environment and my food, my family's food. And so I started to see that now there's tomato paste being sold in glass containers, and I was very happy to see that. What kind of changes in what companies are you saying, yes, we should get behind them and support them with our food dollars? Well, so Eden Foods definitely is one that in, I think, mostly their beans, and I think that's mostly what they sell, they have replaced the BPA with an oleo-rosin lining. So that's, it's nice to have a canned food opportunity, you know, option out there for people. Glass containers are a great alternative for folks to, to be spending their food dollars. But one of the challenges is that those can be more expensive. And so we do need to see market-based changes and policy changes across the board that um, allow consumers at all socioeconomic levels to be able to buy safe, affordable foods that are not packaged in containers with problematic chemicals in them. Well, and I think you raise a really great point about the cost. And I think we can talk about cost at the checkout, and then we can we can talk about the cost to society years later. I mean, okay, so the jar is going to cost more, but how much does chemotherapy cost? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's kind of weighing those those the price on the shelf is not the full cost. Yes, there are you know certainly researchers who've looked at the and this is speaking broadly about chemical exposures. They looked at the socioeconomic costs of children's exposures to chemicals, and the costs are just staggering. Mm-hmm. Probably much more than the two to three additional cents consumers might pay for a canned food item at the checkout counter. Now, it's my understanding that children, in particular, and when women are carrying children in utero, that that's probably one of the biggest times where exposure to these chemicals really matters, where you've got cells replicating at a rapid a rapid rate. So one of the foods that's listed on the Breast Cancer Fund's website is Campbell's Soup, right? What kid hasn't had a bowl of Campbell's Soup? And yet, and we know it's one of the biggest canned food makers in the U.S., what is Campbell's Soup doing to get the BPA out of its cans? So this is, you know, one of the things that we do is anytime we're going to work on an issue, we want to know what the what the companies are doing. We want to hear from them. And we asked our you know network of, of advocates and moms and folks like that to email several companies 
asking them what they're doing about BPA. And the unfortunate thing is we didn't, none of those people got a response from Campbell's Soup. So we would first really love Campbell's to let all of these moms and people concerned about breast cancer know what it is they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want more transparency in our food system. We deserve that when we're feeding our most precious children. Transparency, yeah, is absolutely important. Dr. Engel, let me ask you about some of the alternatives that we're seeing. We we spoke about glass. We talked about some of the oleo resins. What else are companies doing to get the BPA out? So, you know, sometimes it's a matter of a company making a change, and sometimes it's a matter of consumers switching brands. It depends on what's available out there. Tomatoes often are one of the hardest things for company, food items for companies to come up with solutions to. Mm -hmm. But many consumers can find either on their store shelves or online tomatoes packaged either in glass or in what are called Tetra Pak. Mm-hmm. And those are those cardboard boxes that most of us maybe associate with either juice boxes or soups or soy milk. But sometimes you can find your tomatoes in those as well. So that's a solution. Um, another choice that might be economically feasible and, and simple for people is switching to dried beans. Mm-hmm. And that can sound like a real hassle. But what I do is soak the beans and I soak way more than I need cook them up, take the time to do that, and then I freeze a whole bunch. It's just as easy to grab that container out of the freezer as it is to open a can. Exactly. And dried beans. They're really cheap. So that allows me then to spend some of my money on fresh fruits and vegetables as opposed to cans. That's a great That's a great point. Yes, that's one of my strategies too. It's, it's uh, let's see. Cook once, eat twice, I think is the motto, where you're going to yes. cook a lot at one time and then freeze smaller portions for your family. That's a wonderful strategy. You know, sometimes I wonder about the canned food drives that are going on for the poor, and I think, wow, you know, the, the poor already are at higher risk for many chronic diseases, and now we're going to introduce more of these toxins in with the canned food. So I see this as a social justice movement as well. There are definitely elements of of social justice concerns, and that drives home the point that while individual consumers can make some really great choices and people who have the resources and access can do that, that is not an across-the-board solution. And it's just really imperative that we see the market taking the lead, Mm -hmm. providing safer alternatives, providing transparency, and that we see policies passed, which have happened in a lot of states, and there are, of course, bills at the federal level to address this food packaging issue because it needs to happen across the board. Absolutely. Now, what is going on with regard specifically to the BPA legislatively? I see a note on the Breast Cancer Fund website that says, Ask Congress to support the Ban Poisonous Additives Act. Is that separate from TOSCA or the toxic... Substance Control, Control Act. Act. Thank you. It, it is. So this is one of the complexities of chemicals policies is that the Toxic Substances Control Act has jurisdiction over industrial chemicals and ultimate jurisdiction over a chemical like BPA. However, 
in many cases, the specific uses of chemicals are regulated by other agencies in the federal government. So with regard to um, bisphenol A, the regulation is through the FDA because they regulate food, mm-hmm. including food packaging. That's right. And so the banned poisonous additives would ban BPA, call for safer alternatives, and help to reform the laws that govern food packaging to make sure that whatever we're replacing BPA with is a truly safer alternative, not just different, but also concerning. You know, I was concerned because uh, being a dietitian, I get a lot of promotional materials from the different food companies. And I received one from uh, Del Monte, and they were promoting their canned foods, and I sent an email to the communications person, and I said, you know, what is Del Monte doing with regard to BPA? Are you, you getting it working to get it out of your foods? And I received a message back that said, you know, BPA is approved by the FDA. So here again comes the FDA rears its head, and the FDA is in charge of protecting us, but at the same time, BPA has been approved by the FDA. So as a consumer, if I got a response like this back from a food manufacturer, I'd say, oh, okay, well, then there's, I guess there's nothing to worry about. But in reality, there is something to worry about. So how do we know who to believe? I think that's one of the questions that, you know, certainly comes up for people around chemicals policies in a range of issues. The FDA last year expressed some concern about BPA, so they are looking into it, which maybe we'd love to see happen more quickly and maybe legislation could push to happen more quickly, Um, but they have acknowledged the need for more information, and that may change things down the line. Some of the challenges lie with, and we're getting a little bit out of the scope of my expertise here, but as I understand it, some of the timing of when these laws were passed, that it was a really different scope, and so things that were passed, you know, kind of at the beginning of what we might call the chemicals revolution, thought about chemicals really differently. So there's a real need for proactive efforts on the part of agencies to update these laws and for industry to be amenable and even innovative in finding those solutions. So that they can't hide under the umbrella of some agency has said this is safe. You know, the companies have a responsibility to the people buying their foods. That's right. Two, and the agencies have a responsibility to protect us. So consumers really need to call for that to happen because it's our voices that can make that change. I agree. We just have one minute left. And I want to... I know. Our time flew. But do you want to leave our listeners with any last message that I may have that I may not have touched upon? Well, so, you know, the one thing I would say, if I can only say one thing, is check out our website at breastcancerfund.org. Okay. Um, It has lots more details about um, the Cans Not Cancer campaign, about the science linking breast cancer and the environment, and about some of our prevention um, efforts that we'll be doing for Breast Cancer Prevention Month and beyond. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening, and there's always new information there. 
Thank you so much. Uh, We've been speaking with Dr. Connie Engel. She is the Science Education Coordinator at the Breast Cancer Fund. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you so much, Dr. Engel, for sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for having me.